Be seated. At this point, we're going to take our offering, so the guys are going to go ahead and get that ready for us. And as the guys are doing that, I encourage you uh, to grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Judges, which is where we will be. So the guys will be doing that, and uh, we'll prepare to hear from God's Word. Right at this point, I'd invite the kids to go ahead and head out to Children's Church. And so kids, adios. Talk to you after a while. Uh, For the rest of you guys, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Judges. We've been uh, heading towards uh, kind of the continuation of the book of Judges. And we began our last judge this morning uh, by the name of Samson. And so if you have your Bibles, Judges 13 is where we will be. Again, Judges 13 is where we're going to begin. Um... This morning, I'm sure all of you know, because you're here on time, that it was uh, daylight savings time last night, and so hopefully you've had your coffee, hopefully you're nice and alert. As you can tell, I brought my coffee with me so that I don't fall asleep during my own sermon. Um, that would be pretty bad. Uh, so hopefully you're, you're with me uh, this morning. Uh, Judges 13 is where we're going to be. Uh, someone commented that the, the clock in the back of the uh, auditorium has not been changed. And so uh, I think it was Jay who said, hey, just make sure that you, you, know, you look at the, the, the minute hand and not the hour hand. You know? I'm like, hey, that means i got an extra hour to preach, right? Um, no worries, I don't. I think I can read a clock okay. Uh, Judges 13 is where we're going to be this morning. Again, we will uh, be... In the sixth judge by the name of Samson. I think probably all of us are somewhat familiar uh, to some degree with the story of Samson, but I think as we walk our way uh, through the book of, uh, excuse me, the, the judgeship of Samson in three parts, uh, part one uh, this week, part two with John and I next week, and then we'll wrap up uh, Samson the week prior uh, after to that, I hope that it, you'll see it afresh. I hope you'll see it anew. I hope the Lord will really work and uh, we'll discover some things that we did not know about Samson. And so uh, beginning this morning, I want to share a quick... Um, Quick uh, story. Um, I, as you know, I'm, I'm a sports fan, and so uh, there are several websites that I check with regularity uh, involving the sports world. And one of my favorites is uh, ESPN.com. Uh, if you've been there, it's a fantastic site for all things sports. Um, recently, I was perusing uh, ESPN, and I came across an article uh, by the name of this: "The 100 Worst Draft Picks Ever." And this pretty much intrigued me because I thought, oh, "This is interesting. Who's the biggest bust?" 
must of all time. And so I clicked on it and saw a list of these hundred athletes that ESPN considers to be the biggest bust uh, as far as draft picks are concerned. They had a world of potential. They were drafted high in their perspective sport, whether it be basketball or football or baseball or hockey or whatever it might be. And then they just were a flop. Uh, they did not live up to the huge expectations. Um, one of the guys that I felt like should have been on the list, I don't believe he was on the list, but he should have been on the list, is a basketball player uh, by the name of Lynn Bias. Anyone familiar with the Lynn Bias story? A few of you. Okay. Lynn Bias. Um, a really a tragic story. Um, he should be on this list of the 100 worst draft picks ever. He was a high draft pick coming out of college into the NBA, the professional basketball leagues. I think he was drafted even second overall. But the reason why he should be on this list of the 100 worst draft picks ever is not because of his poor play. It's not because he didn't live up to his back basketball expectation. It was because he never got to play a minute in the NBA. Never got to play a minute in the NBA because he passed away before he ever stepped foot on an NBA court. And so I want to show a quick video highlighting the, uh, the life of Lynn Bias, and I think it will serve as a very good introduction for us to this story of unlimited potential and unlimited tragedy with our final judge, Samson. So let's watch this together. Five and 41. So I think that I've been really blessed by the Lord. I just thank Him for all the talents that I have. We interrupt this program for a special report from Channel 4 News. A local success story took a tragic turn this morning. He had lift when lift wasn't popular. He was smooth, you know, he had, he had a really good jump shot. He could dunk on anybody from anywhere. He probably won't dawn on me until I'm about t- 10 years later when I'm old and watching somebody else play and say, well, I used to could do that and I could do it better than that. Two of the finest athletes in the country, Michael Jordan and Bias going up side by side. Bias just out. Michael was somewhat like Lenny, but more high profile. Now, Lenny Bias's game was probably as strong as Michael Jordan's at that point in their career. A lot of people say, well, how do you do that? And I don't really think there's anything. There's nothing to me. It's a small thing. I dunk the ball and they just go off. The Boston Celtics select Len Bias of the University of Maryland. Really hoping that it could have been Boston in the end. Yeah. I really was hoping that it was Boston. And my dream came true. You have a lot of free time. You have to know how to use your time. And that's where the drugs and the social life comes into play, and that's where a lot of players get caught up in. Bias is rushed to Leland Memorial Hospital. For two hours, doctors try to revive the basketball star, but at 8.50, he is pronounced dead. The death of Len Bias. The death of Len Bias proves that you don't have to be addicted to cocaine for it to kill you. You had to know somebody to even get it. And go to certain places where it was sold. It wasn't sold on a street corner. There are people who know how the drugs got. Nobody forced us to do what we did tonight. And sources say police are looking for a man who goes by the name of Tribble. Coke was mostly being used to stay up because it was a late night. I really don't know if I'm up to this, but 
I guess Leonard would want me to say something. You got to look at every situation as though it's going to be the end of your life. So now you know the story of Lynn Bias. Unlimited basketball potential. Uh, basketball experts will tell you, as you heard on the screen, that he was as good as Michael Jordan, the best player ever of all time in his college days. High draft pick. Um, the sky, sky was the limit for Lynn Bias. And he made some poor choices. And his unlimited potential was squandered. Uh, this morning, as we begin the judgeship of Samson in Judges 13, I think Samson is much Samson's life is much like the tragedy that is the life of Len Bias. Uh, Samson, as we're going to see in chapter 13 this morning, was a man who had unlimited potential to be used of God. You could say that he was the Len Bias of the spiritual world, if you will, uh, growing up. He had enormous potential, and yet he squanders it. He squanders it, much like Len Bias, on selfish living. We're going to see this play out in chapters 14 and 15 next week, and we'll see the sad conclusion, much like Lynn Bias in chapter 16. But this morning, in chapter 13, we're going to, be, to see the beginning of the story. Uh, the beginning of the story of Samson, Samson is found in 13. I've entitled the sermon, Samson's Silver Spoon. How many of you are familiar with the title, the, the term, someone is born with a silver spoon in their mouth, right? Okay, what we mean by that is that they have every advantage in life. They're born with wealthy parents or tons of potential, intellectual or spiritual uh, prowess, if you will. Um, Samson was born with a silver spoon, a spiritual silver spoon in his mouth. And that's the focus of our text this morning. Samson's life, starting in uh, chapter 13, Samson's silver spoon. So let's go ahead and jump to the text. What we're going to see is there are three kind of main sections, if you will, to this story. We're going to focus on the first section of the birth of Samson, starting in verse 1 of chapter 13. And uh, it focuses on uh, the announcement by an angel of the birth of Samson. So let's go ahead and begin uh, in verse 1. The story begins uh, much like our other stories in the book of Judges. If you will recall, uh, throughout the book of Judges, there are several cycles. This is the sixth cycle, the sixth major judge, if you will. And every other cycle up until this point begins with uh, words similar to this. Uh, Israel, God's people, uh, did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served idols. Uh, and it goes on to say, uh, in every single text, that they called upon the Lord, they cried out to the Lord, because the Lord uh, would discipline his people and would bring oppression. We're going to begin in verse 1. The story uh, is much like all of the other stories, with one noticeable exception. Verse 1 of chapter 13. The story of Samson, Samson begins this way. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Again, this is a, a very short introduction compared to the other introductions, um, but there's one noticeable admission. One thing is glaringly missing, and that is the fact that Israel did not respond to God. That is the fact that, unlike all of the other five times, Israel did not cry out to God. We notice this. It says that they did evil, and the Lord gave them over to the hands of oppressors as before. This time, it's the nation's uh, the nation of uh, Philistia or the Philistines for 40 years. But unlike every single time before, what we saw happen is God would bring oppression and God's people would say, after a time period, 
help us, God, help us, uh, we're being oppressed. Sometimes they would even recognize that it was because of their sin. Sometimes they would even recognize it was because of their idolatry, and they would say, we have sinned against you. Um, whether it was true confession or repentance or not uh, is yet to be determined. I don't believe that it is. But at least they recognized that God was oppressing them because of their sin. But we don't see that here. It's a glaring omission, and it's intentional. The reason that it's omitted is because this is the last judge. And what we're going to see is that the last judge, Samson, is going to be the worst judge of all. He is the least receptive to God. He is the least obedient to God. He is the least moral of all of the judges. And what we see is that Israel follows right along. And so we've been talking about judges being the downward spiral. Well, they're at the end of the spiral with Samson. And we see here very clearly in verse 1, what I would call the spiritual apathy of God's people. They are spiritually apathetic. Uh, They do not cry out to God. They don't even recognize, I believe at this point, that they're being oppressed because of their sin. They don't recognize their sin. They don't pray to God. They don't call out to him. And we see significantly enough the time period of that oppression. Do you notice how many years? 40 years. The longest oppression period up until this point had been 20 years. This is intentional. Double the time, 40 years, this is one generation's worth of people who did not cry out to God, did not recognize their sin. And as we will see next week, they were very content with the status quo. They were very content being oppressed by a pagan people. And so we see that Israel has reached the height of spiritual apathy. They have gone all the way down the downward spiral. So we see that in verse 1, something very noticeable. The story then continues as God, out of pure grace and out of pure mercy, begins to raise up a judge. And so we see this beginning in verse 2, and we're introduced to the judges, Samson, his family, his mother and father. And so let's read this together in verse 2. Verse 2, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren. Important. And his wife was barren and had no children. And so we're introduced here uh, to Samson's father, who is named by the name of Manoah. Uh, Interestingly enough, Samson's mother is not named. And what we're going to find out is throughout the story of Samson, uh, throughout all of the women that are in his life, the only one that is named is his mother, who is good, and Delilah, who is bad. Uh, But, excuse me, the mother is not named here. The only woman in his life who is named is Delilah, who is going to be very, very bad. And so we have the parents introduced. But what we see is uh, a significant point. Uh, Samson's mother was barren. She had no children. Uh, They had uh, trouble conceiving. We see that I think the author is is kind of building this anticipation for us. If you remember throughout... Throughout the Bible, there are several women who are barren. Uh, Likely, she was older in age. We don't know that for sure, but likely, Samson's mom was older in age, much like some of the other women who were barren. And what we see is this is building the tension up. Other women who were... um, who were barren, who God granted children at that time. We think of names like Sarah. We think of names like Rachel. We think of names like Hannah and Elizabeth. All of these women who the Bible says were barren in their old age, and the Lord granted them children. We see this scenario playing out again. And we're meant to think, she's barren, she's likely old, and an angel is going to appear. 
this child of hers is going to be someone special. So we're introduced to the parents in verse 2. Then basically in verses 3 through 5, we see the story of the first angelic visit. We see the angel coming, uh, speaking to not Manoah, but to Manoah's wife about the child that's going to be born. And so we see some of the details of Samson's life in verses 3 through 5. Let's read this together. 3 through 5. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. That kind of strikes me as a, you know, tell me something I don't know. I'm barren. I don't have any children. And then he says, this is wonderful news. You're going to conceive and you're going to bear a son. Verse 4. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor, no razor shall come upon his head. For the child will be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And so in verses 3 through 5, we, we get some significant details. We see, again, the anticipation is building for whom this child is going to be and what this child is going to do. Um, we see, uh, as you look throughout the biblical account, when the angel of the Lord appears to parents. And the angel of the Lord says, you're going to have a child, and this child is going to be special. Uh, what that should indicate to us, the very fact that the angel comes and tells this woman, you're going to have a kid, that doesn't happen very often. I don't know about you, but when before you had your first child, did an angel come to talk to you about it? Probably not. I'm pretty sure that's not how it happened before Asher was born. That's very rare. And it's rare for a reason, because when the angel comes to tell a mother and a father, you're going to bear a child, God has something in mind. God's going, planning, wanting to do something spectacular through this child. We think about other people, uh, other people in the Bible whom an angel, whom God directly uh, contacted through an, an, an angelic being about the birth of a child. Let me just name some names here and we see why we should anticipate what Samson will do so much. We see that Isaac, one of the great patriarchs of the faith, was foretold. King Josiah in the Old Testament, who leads Israel in a great revival, his birth was foretold. The pagan king Cyrus, who allowed Israel to return home and to rebuild the temple, was foretold. His birth was foretold. Of course, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, we know the story in Matthew and Luke, his birth was foretold. And of course, Sunday school answer, Jesus, his birth was foretold as well. And so when you put all of this together... This is a huge deal. This kid is going to be important. We see some of the details also. First thing that we see is that this child is going to be a Nazarite. We're going to talk about that here in a second. But he's going to take this special vow from birth, and it's a lifetime vow that he's going to be set apart to God for a special service, for a special project, for a special mission. He tells the mom, you know, this is something that you need to do because this child is going to be so important. What I want you to do is don't eat anything unclean and then don't drink any strong drink. Um, that's very much like today. You know, when uh, you get pregnant, as uh, my wife and I uh, did uh, with our son Asher, uh, I've told you before, she was pretty particular about what she ate and about what she didn't eat. 
Why is that? Some people are way particular. Some people are not at all particular. We were somewhere in the middle. But the reason is, is because you want to do everything that you can to ensure that that child is going to be healthy and strong, right? And and this is what the Lord tells uh, his mom. He even gives instructions to how to prepare and take care of this child before he's even born. Some other details. We see that not only will this child be a Nazarite, but he's going to begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And so we see that he is set apart. He's going to be set apart to God, live a separate, holy life to God. But not only that, not only was he set apart, but he had a special calling. You could say he had a special mission in life. He had a special purpose. And what he was going to be was a judge. He was going to be a savior. He was going to be a deliverer for God's people. So he's set apart to God. He's set apart on mission for a special purpose. We see that the angel says, uh, and what you need to do is when the child's born, you don't ever cut his hair. That may strike us pretty odd, especially if we're not real familiar with the Old Testament in this thing called the Nazarite vow. It's, it's found in number six, actually, if you want to look it up at some point. But essentially what it was is, is a way in the Old Testament for a man or a woman who could, uh, they want to serve God for a special uh, thing, for a special reason, for a special period of time. They would take this thing called the Nazarite vow, which essentially was saying, I'm going to uh, not engage in certain things, and I'm going to be set apart for you, God, for a special time period, for a special purpose. Uh, but it's significant that that was temporary. It wasn't a lifetime. It had a beginning point, and it had an ending point. Not only that, it was voluntary. No one could be forced, if you will, into taking this vow. We're going to see that that's a little different with Samson. Uh, the angel articulates to the mom, don't cut his hair. Uh, I feel like that's a little bit how we are with Asher right now. It kind of hits home. We're in the stage to where he's about 14 months and we've not ever cut his hair before. And both of our mothers are, are commenting, are you going to cut his hair? It looks it's getting kind of long. Are you, gonna, you know, you're starting to get that. And my wife's like, we're never going to cut his hair. You know, And I'm like, we have to cut it sometime, honey. We can't bring the mullet back. You know what I mean? And uh, she's like, it's not a mullet. I'm like, it's a mullet. Anyway. That's besides the point. Uh, he, he, Samson was not going to have his hair cut. And that was a part of the Nazarite vow, which essentially was three things. Don't ever cut your hair. Uh, don't ever come into contact with anything from the fruit of the, fr- fruit of the vines, like wine, other fermented kind of things. And the third part was don't ever touch anything dead. Don't ever touch an animal or a person that was dead. Those were kind of the three things of the Nazarite vow. Significantly enough, as we go through his life in chapters 14 and 15 and 16, in particular next week in 14 and 15, we get a pretty strong inclination that two out of the three he's going to break. And most likely the third is going to be broken. And so he is a Nazarite. So the point that I've been building at is this. Very clearly, Samson, Samson, is special. He's special. He's set apart to God in a spiritual sense. He has a mission. This is what his life is supposed to be about. His mother is even supposed to take precautions about what she eats and drinks. He, indeed, is a special guy, even from birth. And so what we see is the story kind of wraps up with his first angelic visit in verses 6 and 7. What we see is that Manoah's wife, after receiving this visitation from the angel, of course, is excited and confused. And so she goes naturally and tells her husband the details. And we see that in verses 6 and 7. So let's read that together. Verse 6. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, 
Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then, drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. At the very end, uh, she, the only part that she, um, she didn't get it wrong, but I think she, she came to this conclusion. That the angel says he shall be a Nazarite, Nazarite from birth until uh, all of his life. And she foreshadows a little bit about the way that he's going to die of his death. And so in verses 1 through 7, we essentially see the first angelic visit. Our anticipation is building. This is a special kid. We go on to the next section, starting in verse 8, and it runs through verse 23. It's a pretty significant section of scripture here. What I hope we can do is just summarize this for you. Um, and it does contribute to the overall flow here, but I, w- I want to try my best to, to, con- to just to summarize this. And so we see not only does the angel come once, but the angel comes twice. This is what we see in verses 8 through 23. Manoah, uh, Samson's father, is a little curious. He says, okay, I would like to hear more. What, you know, what does this mean? Uh, wh- what should we do with this child? I mean, we have some instruction, but we see Manoah wanting more affirmation. He wants to know from God exactly what he needs to do. I, I take this as an indication of he wants to make sure that he obeys the angel's commands. And so he prays to God, send the angel again. And lo and behold, God in his grace sends the angel again. The angel comes, and I'm summarizing here. Uh, the angel essentially repeats to Manoah and his wife the very same thing that he said before. We don't really get any additional information. He just reiterates the same things that he talks about. And so Manoah, according to traditional Near Eastern custom, says, Hey, why don't you have dinner with us? You know, come, I'll make you a meal. The angel says, no, I'm not going to stay for dinner. I've got other things to do. Why don't instead you take what you're going to give me to eat and make a burnt offering to the Lord? And so that's what Manoah and his wife do. They take this food, they make a burnt offering, and as the, as the story goes, as the flames were, uh, were going up towards heaven, as you will, the angel of the Lord joins with those flames and flies away into heaven. A spectacular sight. Uh, the text says that Manoah and his wife didn't realize that they were talking with the angel of the Lord, and they fall on their faces in fear, as most people do when they come in contact with God or one of his representatives. We see that Manoah is very frightened. He says, surely we are going to die. We have seen God. We have seen God. We are going to die. And Manoah's wife, who is very practical and pragmatic, essentially says, we're not going to die, silly. If God wanted to kill us, we'd be dead already. That's essentially what she says, is don't be silly. Uh, You know, we'd be dead if God wanted us dead. And so the story ends, if you will, uh, like that. And so what we see is there's one angelic visit, there's two angelic visits. But the second angelic visit really, I think, highlights Samson's heritage. It highlights Samson's parents. What was his family-like life? What, who is going to be shaping and molding this young man's character? And uh, as far as I can tell... The best that I can see that in the midst of a perverse and perverted time period of God's people who were straying from him, Samson, I believe, had a pretty good upbringing. I think he had pretty godly parents. And so this, this contributes to this overall idea that Samson, man, he has a spiritual silver spoon. I mean, think about it. His wife, uh, his mom is barren, setting him up to be a special guy. The angel comes to announce his birth. He's going to be special. Uh, she gives, uh, he gives the mother, this is what you eat, this is what you don't eat. This is what he's going to be. He's a Nazarite from birth. He has a special mission to save Israel. The angel comes again and we see his parents. He has a, a godly upbringing. And so the point that I want us to see very clearly is this. 
Samson has a really good spiritual spoon. He has every advantage as far as I'm concerned. He has every advantage to be the kind of man that God is calling him to be. And so the question is, what is he going to do with that? Is he going to be like Len Bias? Or is he going to be like some of the other people that God called and used greatly? We see this story concludes in verses 24 through 25. Finally, the much-anticipated birth of the child. Samson's birth is told in verses 24 through 25. Let's read this together and we see the end of chapter 13. 24 and 25. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew... And the Lord, notice this, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahana Dan between Zorah and Eschatol. And so the story concludes with some significant points. What we see in verses 24 and 25 is the angelic visit. He has a set, he's set apart. He is to save Israel. He has a godly heritage. And then we see just a few instances about his growing up, his early years, if you will, his formative years. We see that verse 24 and 25 tell us that uh, the, the young man grew. And so physically, I, I take this, he grows. And the Lord blessed him. It's, it's a general statement. We don't know exactly what that means, but what I think this means is, is God was with him. He was growing him. He was uh, maturing him. God was working on him. God had blessed him. And then what we see to kind of set up chapter 14 is that at some point in his life, and I take it as, as he was an older man, the Spirit of the Lord began to stir. And so God's Holy Spirit is beginning to do something in this man. And so what I want us to see, again, the, the point is very clear this morning. And I want you to get one thing. Samson has a spiritual silver spoon. He has everything that he needs, everything that he could ever want to fulfill what God has for him. Um, as I was thinking about this idea of, of unlimited potential, of unmet expectations, I began to think back about some of the friends that I had in high school. I began to think about that. This is a complete aside, but I joined the 21st century this past week and I got on Facebook. Aren't you proud of me? Thank you. I can use email too, believe it or not. It's amazing. Um, I joined Facebook and so this also, uh, you know, I, I kind of, you know, kind of touched base with some of my old high school friends. And so really, um, this past week, it's funny that it happened as I was talking about Samson. I began to think about people that I knew 12 years ago. I graduated from high school 12 years ago. And, uh, I, you know, interacting with them. And you, and you have these thoughts. What, what became of so-and-so? Whatever happened to so-and-so? So take, take a, a trip with me down memory lane, if you will. And you don't have to say things out loud here. But in high school... In high school, one of the things that I think every high school does is for each senior class as, you, as they graduate, they, nom, they nominate people for certain titles, right? So most cool and most likely to succeed and most congenial, although they probably don't use that word today anymore because kids don't know their vocabulary. But, you know, they say, they say simply like the coolest or something. Um, and, and they nominate people for all of these things, right? Most athletic, whatever. Okay, so did your high school do that? Those of you who have graduated, yes? Okay, so remember back then, back to your high school days. For some of you, it was this long ago. For some of you, it was a little bit longer. Most likely to succeed. Do you guys remember, in your graduating high school class, who was nominated most likely to succeed? How many of you actually remember that? So, okay, the young people. You guys, some of you don't remember that, huh? 
most likely to succeed. I, I remember who is voted most likely to succeed. Um, let me ask this. In your class, did that person, as far as you know, if you know what they did, did they live up to that billing at this point? Were they, did they succeed? If they did, yes, yes, some of, yes. Okay, what about no? Any of you guys who have most likely to succeed and they didn't, Chris? Okay, only a few. Um, As I think about my most likely to succeed um, story, there's a young man who was a pretty good friend of mine. His name was Danny, Danny Lada. And uh, he was one of those guys that kind of makes you sick, who never studies and aces the test. You know what I mean? One of those naturally brilliant kind of guys. He didn't do a work a lick, and I worked really hard, and he still beat me out. He was a brilliant guy, and so, of course, he got most likely to succeed. And so, at that point, we anticipate Danny is going to do great things. He's brilliant. He's smart. Um, he doesn't have the best family background, but he, he's, he's, a, he's, he's a genius. Um, I'm happy to tell you that my most likely to succeed person in my high school actually did succeed, if you will, at least in the world's terms. He got an engineering degree. He went on to work for a large engineering firm, and I'm sure he's making a lot more money than I am at this point. And uh, as far as I know, he has a family and beautiful kids, and he's a success. Um, I, I was talking with Shelly about this also, and I, and I was kind of running this by her, and I said, well, what about your class? Who was voted most likely to succeed in your class? Guess who it was? It was my wife. <laughs> yeah. Which shouldn't surprise me, right? I shouldn't be like, really? You know? <laughs> She's not here today, so I, can't, I can say that, right? <laughs> I wasn't like that, believe me. Um, <laughs> okay, I'm in trouble now. Um, no, I, I really wasn't like that. Uh, but it was, it, was she, it was she. It was her. And uh, unlike myself, I graduated from a really small high school, about 65 in my graduating class. She had, I think, 350-something in her graduating class, so she, little smarty pants, you know, she's a, I married well, you know what I mean, she's a smarty pants, and so I was like, really, you really did, and so then I, then I asked her, I was like, well, do you think that you lived up to that, you know what I mean, do you think that you were, lived up to the billing of most likely to succeed, and she said, well, I don't know, how do you define success, and I said, well, I don't know, and so we had this really interesting conversation, but the point is, and I drag on, the uh, I, <laughs> The, point, the comment that I made was, well, here's the deal. You succeeded, and, and let me tell you why. You married well. And, and that's it. And she said, yeah. She said, you're right. I married well, and so I'm a success. And I said, well, you, you lived up to the billing. And the point is, is that um, Samson here, I think, was likely, if they had high school back then, which they didn't, he would have received the most likely to succeed award. He had every, every advantage in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm, I believe. And so the bar, the bar is set high for Samson. So how's it going to play out? Well, next week, I'd invite you to come back. We're going to cover two chapters, 14 and 15. And we're going to find out if this guy, who would have been voted most likely to succeed, what he did. What did he do with this spiritual silver spoon? I'm going to close our sermon this way with a couple application points. A couple application points. And the first um, is up on the screen, and that is the idea of spiritual apathy. Uh, I, I pointed this out at the very beginning of the sermon. I think this really speaks, spoke to me this week, and I hope it speaks to you. Uh, we've been traveling this road, this path with God's people. At the beginning of the book of Judges, God's people are following him. Uh, they have a leader, Joshua, who recently passed away. They seek the Lord. They pray to God and say, God, who's supposed to lead us in, into battle? And God answers them. And through chapter 1, about one chapter, we see that they are actually obedient. They are portrayed as obedient people. They're sensitive to God. And pretty much from then on out, the spiral 
is going and going, and they are going down the spiral quick, 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 till they hit the very end. And what I think this means for us is that we, uh, very much like the people of Israel, I think we see some signs of what it is for us to be spiritually apathetic in our relationship with God. Three things that I want to point out from the text here. First of all, we can become apathetic when we, like God's people, like Israel, when we fail to recognize the sin in our life. When, when we look at Israel, what we see is that before they recognized the reason that they were in bondage was because they sinned. And we don't see that anymore. They have gotten to the place... I believe, where they don't even recognize that idolatry is idolatry. They've gotten to the place where they don't even recognize that rebellion is rebellion. They don't, con- they don't con- uh, confess their sin. They're not convicted of sin anymore. And brothers and sisters, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, this is one sign for me and for you as well that we have become apathetic in our spiritual life when we fail to recognize sin in our life. And so I want to ask you a question How often are you convicted of sin in your life? How often do you feel the tugging and the nudging of the Holy Spirit saying, oh, 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 that attitude's not right. Oh, 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 you shouldn't have said that. How often do you engage in confession and repentance? Because as backward as it seems, the more sensitive we are to sin, the more convicted we feel, the more often we repent and turn from that and ask God to help us, the more spiritual we are, the more on the road away from apathy we are. And the converse is true. If today you're like, man, I don't feel that very much. I don't feel God convicting me. I don't, I don't. It may very well be that you are much like God's people. You don't recognize your sin anymore. We don't recognize in our life when sin is sin. And so the fears that we hold on to for the future, we're worried about this, we're worried about that. We don't recognize that that is actually distrust of God. We don't recognize that it's sin. That lust that we have in our heart over the image that we saw on the net that's bouncing around in our mind, we don't recognize that that's infidelity to our spouse. We don't recognize that as sin. When we have that extra helping of dinner or ice cream, as I'm very guilty of doing too often, we don't recognize that that's gluttony and we're, we're, we're trying to fill our heart with something that only God can fill. We don't, we don't recognize sin as sin in our life. So this morning, is this you? Are you like God's people? Do you recognize sin? Do you, con- do you confess your sin? Is there repentance often? In your life, I think the second mark here that we see from God's people is that we, like Israel, are apathetic when we don't care that we are enslaved to sin. God's people did not care that they were enslaved. Forty years, double the time that they had ever been enslaved, and we don't get an indication that they care. In fact, as John and I talk next week, what we're going to find out is that when God does raise up Samson and he begins that process of at least engaging with, with the enemy, the enemy comes and they say to Israel, hey, give us Samson. And, and they're like, sure, <laughs> here you go, you can have him. And they get mad at Samson. They're like, what are you doing? Why are you fighting with them? They're very apathetic. They don't care. They're happy being enslaved. And I would suggest to you that we are spiritually apathetic when we don't care that we are spiritually enslaved to sin. We just don't care that we have an anger problem. It used to bother us before. It used to convict us. We would work at it. We'd pray about it. And we just don't care. And we say, that is who I am. That is who I am. We just don't care anymore. We don't care about the white lies that are in our lives. We tell to our spouse or to our our boss, just a little white lie. You know, just no big deal. We just don't care about it. About the laziness that we have in our spiritual, 
spiritual life, spiritual disciplines were like, well, I used to really enjoy my time with God, but oh, just, I just don't care anymore. You just don't care. And so is that you? Is that me this morning? We just don't care about the sin in our life. Thirdly, we can become apathetic like God's people when we don't cry out to God. Notice that is what was missing before they had at least cried out to God in prayer. And whether their prayer was self-centered or not, I believe it was. At least they cried out to him. At least they prayed. At least they say, God, help me. At least there's some inclination in their hearts to pray to God. But there's not anymore. No inclination to pray whatsoever. And so I would suggest to you that a good sign of spiritual apathy is that your prayer life is going downhill. It's not as existent as it once was. Sharing personally on this note, um, Jesus says uh, in the Gospels that when you pray, go into your closet and your father who's in secret will hear you. Um, For me, and I don't know about you, for me, my prayer closet, if you will, and I've probably shared this before, is in the shower. Okay, it's weird. I pray in the shower. That's my prayer closet. Talk about being humble before God. There we are. Completely humble before God. (laughs) But I tell you why I started that. Because it was the only time I could get alone. Only time I could be alone. Growing up in college, it's the only time I can be alone. So I pray in the shower. And so for me, as silly as this sounds, the last time I spend in the shower, I know that I'm spiritually apathetic. I know that my prayer life is going downhill when I take... 10-minute showers as opposed to 20 or 25-minute showers. And so what about you? What about you? We see three signs of spiritual apathy this morning. Second application, our final application in closing this morning, is not only that of apathy, but that of opportunity. We've seen throughout this birth account of Samson that he has a spiritual silver spoon. He has every advantage. He has uh, been set apart by God. He has been commissioned for a special project for God. We talked this morning in our Sunday school class about Ephesians 2.10, about how God has uh, good works uh, laid out before us, that we should walk in those good works. And Samson had good works before him that he was to walk in. He was supposed to deliver Israel. He was supposed to fulfill his vow. He had a tremendous opportunity to be used of God. He had a tremendous opportunity to be used of what God would have for him. And what we're going to see is that he does not care. He does not give a rip. He lives for himself. He lives for his desires. He does what he wants to do. And he squanders. He squanders all of the stuff that we've been talking about. His silver spoon is rusted, if you will. And so I think the application for us is this. We, in in a couple areas, I think we, like Samson, uh, have been set apart. We don't take a Nazarite vow now, but the scriptures are clear. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ and we become born again and we become believers, that we are set apart to God, that we are made holy to him. And not only that, but we have a mission Samson's mission was to take on the Philistines. That's not our mission today, but we have a very clearly defined mission. We're supposed to go and make disciples and live for God's glory. That's our calling. That's what our life is to be about. Not only that, we see the spirit working in Samson's life. We, uh, we see from the scriptures that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We have everything we need for life and godliness. God has equipped us spiritually, and he's called us on mission. And so we, I think, are very much... Like Samson, our lives are supposed to count. They're supposed to matter. We're supposed to be useful for God. Not to, not to earn his love, but because he's loved us. And we respond in that. As I think about my life, what this means for me, and maybe for you, is that I forget, I just forget these things. 
I just forget that my life is not about me. Pretty simply put. I think that if we were a fish in a fishbowl and the fish breathes in water and you were to ask the fish, what are you breathing? You know, you're in water. It would say, what? Water? What? You know, it's just, it's natural. It's, it doesn't know that it's in water. It's the air that we breathe. Because we're fallen and sinful, even as believers, the air that we breathe is that of self-centeredness. We breathe it. It's natural towards us. And so like Samson, as we are going to see next week, he takes this God-given gifting and ability and calling, and he lives for himself. He lives completely for himself. And golly, I do this too, you know? I think, how often do I, how often do I think... God has given me financial resources, a car, a home, a good salary, whatever. He's given me these financial resources, and I just think that he does it for me. I just think it's for me. It's for whatever I want. And it's not. (laughs) It's to be used for God's glory. Yes, it's supposed to meet my needs, but God blesses me so I can bless others. And I think it's all mine. I can use it for whatever I want. No, it's not. No, it's not. I think about the relationships that I have. Maybe my family relationships. Maybe my extended family. I love my extended family. I miss them dearly. And I enjoy every minute I get for them, with them. But I tend to forget that, you know what? God didn't give me a ton of cousins and fantastic grandparents just so I could have someone to talk to over Thanksgiving dinner. He gave me those relationships so that I can have an impact on their life for the gospel. And he gives me relationships here with my neighbors or people in the church, not just so I can have friends, although it's good to have friends, so that I can have an impact for the gospel. And we can become much like Samson, and we forget our calling. We forget that our life is not ours, and that it's not about us, and that everything that he has given us, from relationships to talents to gifts to uh, anything financial, we have a calling. And it's supposed to be about God. Um... More specifically, Samson, we're going to find out, has some particularly nice gifts. The Spirit comes upon him. And we all know this story, right? Samson is what? He's strong. He's like the man of man. He is a muscular dude. He's like Arnold, you know, in his hip days when he was big and stuff. You like that? I thought it was pretty good. Arnold. <laughs> Laugh with me or at me. I don't care. Uh, He's, he's a big dude, you know, and God has gifted him to do amazing things. And yet, what does he do? Does he go up and rally the troops for God's glory? No, he just picks fights because he's selfish. He just picks fights. He squanders his gifts and his talents. But do we do this as well? Um, the Bible says that we as believers, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, that at that time, a whole bunch of things happen. But what happens is that you're given spiritual gifts. And there are a lot of lists of spiritual gifts, but we each have at least one. And many of us have numerous spiritual gifts. And how often do we take our spiritual gifts and let them lay dormant? Maybe you have the spiritual gift of teaching. We need teachers. We need Sunday school teachers. We need Awana teachers. We need small group leaders. Don't let your gift lay dormant. Maybe you have the gift of being a good administrator. Lord knows that I need administrative help. (laughs) Please help me. (laughs) Help us be better administratively. Um, You know, maybe you have the gift of hospitality. We're going to need people here pretty soon to man a welcome center, to have a good greeter ministry. If, if that's your gift, man, come talk to me. Don't let, it, don't let it lay dormant. Not only does God give us spiritual gifts, but as you know, God gives us talents, abilities, things that we're good at. Maybe you're good with your hands. Maybe you're good with computers. Maybe you're good with sound and AV. Um, I don't know what it is, but God gives us talents. So are you using those for God's glory? Maybe you're gifted musically. 
We need help with that. Maybe you're gifted mechanically. Maybe you're gifted technically or creatively. We need help with all of these things. We want you to use what God has given you for that. And so we're going to close this morning uh, by taking communion. And the way I want to transition this is, is this way. Um, I'm going to ask the guys to throw on some music here in, in a minute. And I just want us to have just a quick minute as you prepare your heart to take communion. I want, I want you to think about a couple things. First, think about where you are spiritually. Are you apathetic? Are you like God's people? If you are, I encourage you, repent, confess, be changed, ask Jesus to help you, and then come and be reminded by the bread and the blood that Jesus forgives your sins and wants to enable you to not be spiritually apathetic. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe you've, you've realized that you're wasting your, 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 your calling and your gifts. Confess that. Come talk to someone about how you can do that. This morning, maybe you're here and uh, you've never placed your faith in Jesus. You've not, you don't know what it is to know Jesus personally. You've not been born again. You don't, you don't, these, these things are kind of foreign to you. You've not had that experience to where you know for sure when you die that you will be in the presence of God because, because of Jesus, because what, if, what he's done, because he died for your sins, because you placed your faith in him. I want you to know this morning that Samson is a picture, like all scriptures are, of Jesus. Uh, we see at the very beginning that when God raised up a deliverer, when he raised up Samson, they didn't at all deserve it. God was raising up a savior for his people, and they did not at all deserve it. They didn't even cry out to him. But out of grace, we're going to see God raise up a savior. The very same tr- thing is true about humanity, that we do not deserve a savior, that we do not deserve grace or forgiveness or salvation, but God raised up a savior, an ultimate savior, by the name of Jesus Christ for us, for our sins, for my sins, for the sin of all humanity. Secondly, we see that Israel, God raised up a Savior for them. God raised up Samson for them. But as we'll see next week, they had to cooperate with that. They had to want to have a Savior. They had to want to be saved. And they didn't. We're going to see that they did not act on God's Savior. And the same thing is true for us today. God has provided a Savior who shed his blood, who... uh, uh, who, whose flesh was ripped for our sins and for your sins. But you have to cooperate with him. You have to place your faith in him, if you will, unlike God's people of old. And so I'm going to ask this. I'm going to start the music. I'm going to ask you just to, just to pray. Take some time with God. Let God work with you. And when you're prepared, when you're ready, if you're a believer in Jesus, I invite you to come. Be reminded of God's grace through Jesus Christ. We're going to begin that, and then we'll close with song.